If you enjoy music's greatest mysteries, you're going to love Dan Rather's The Big Interview. That guy really digs into the truth. Check out his podcast sometime. On this episode of Music's Greatest Mysteries, we investigate the mysterious circumstances surrounding the death of guitar legend Randy Rhodes. He was not going to sit there and watch this thing happen if he could do something about it. Then, the country diva battle for How Do I Live? And finally, what is the most mysterious song on the internet? It's like a cult that's formed around this song. Randy Rhodes. The name is synonymous with heavy metal greatness. There have been few musicians who have left such a lasting mark on their genre in so short a time. Amazing guitar player. So iconic, so powerful. Extremely melodic. He had this sort of classical influence to his playing. Polka dots on his guitar, the Jackson flying Vs, every note he played seemed perfect. As Ozzy Osbourne's sidekick, he stormed the music world with intricate guitar riffs, quickly becoming one of the top guitarists in the world. But his meteoric rise is cut short by a horrible accident, still shrouded in doubt. Randy Rhodes was killed instantly when his single-engine aircraft cartwheeled after striking the tour bus that, in fact, had Ozzy on board. It was such a tragic day. And, you know, there's a lot of different theories. Prank, accident, attempted murder, attempted suicide. What happened in that plane? What happened to Randy? The legend of Randy Rhodes begins at home. His mother, Dolores, is a musician and encourages Randy to do the same. But it's a twist of fate that gets a six string in his hand for the first time. He picked up the guitar when he was six. My mom had a closet all full of stuff, you know, and he hit something in the closet and the guitar crashed down and it kind of like just appeared in front of him. So he said, all right, I guess I better learn how to play this thing. His mom is the one that opened up the music school in Musonia in North Hollywood. So he spent a lot of time at his mom's music school. He was taking lessons up until 14, 15, and his teacher said, I've got nothing left to teach him. He's amazing. He could start teaching here. One time my mom said to Randy, you know, Randy, you've got a God-given talent. And he just started crying like just tears, because he knew if my mom said it, it must really mean something. Randy decides to take all his training to the stage and forms Quiet Riot when he's just 17 years old. Soon, along with Van Halen, they're one of LA's best club acts. When I played with Randy Rose in Quiet Riot, what he did was outstanding. It was like, wow, this is amazing. He was focused on being an amazing musician. But Quiet Riot was more of an opening band. They were rarely the headliner. By 1979, it was pretty much clear that, you know, the writing on the wall that we're not going to get signed. And then Randy tells me as he's packing up after rehearsal, he goes, yeah, I got to go over to uh, the studio and, uh, and play for this guy, Ozzy Osbourne. He didn't want to go. And my mom is the one that said, you need to go. 
So Randy goes, auditions, and he's just tuning up and noodling. Randy was tuning up, and Ozzy said, by God, you're the greatest guitar player I've ever seen. You got the job. As much as Randy needs a break in his career, Ozzy needs something too. After leaving Black Sabbath in 1979, the legendary madman finds himself at a career crossroads. Most critics thought Ozzy was done. Ozzy was struggling with abuse issues, and Randy was essentially a clean and sober kid who wanted to play guitar all the time. You have someone like Randy who was a studious, disciplined musician. That established a blueprint, really, for the rest of Ozzy's entire solo career. The chemistry is instantaneous and evident from the opening chords of their first single together from the 1980 debut album, Blizzard of Oz, the heavy metal standard, Crazy Train. That guitar sound you hear on Crazy Train, which is so connected with Ozzy, that's Randy. Black Sabbath was sort of a dark, heavy metal band. Now Ozzy found himself with songs on mainstream rock radio. In some ways, his success with Randy was surpassing anything he'd had with Sabbath. The success of Crazy Train brings the album Blizzard of Oz to number 21 on the charts. They follow it up with Diary of a Madman, another wildly successful album. The band is headlining massive arena shows. Despite the success, Straight Laced Rhodes is struggling with Ozzy and his personal demons. Yeah, Randy really, really loved Ozzy, and Ozzy loved Randy. Yeah, but it bothered Randy that he drank so much. Right before Randy passed, he actually told Ozzy, you know, you're gonna kill yourself one day. That would be the last conversation the two men have. After a concert on March 18th, 1982, bus driver Andy Acock drives straight through the night to an unscheduled pit stop in Florida. They arrive the next morning at a ranch, which also has a single-engine airplane. Acock, who has a suspended pilot's license, offers to take the band members up for a joyride. The idea was to really annoy everybody that was sleeping inside, which included Ozzy Osbourne. And so they start with trying to prank the tour bus. Acock flies the plane erratically, buzzing the tour bus full of sleeping band members several times before landing. He then offers to take a second group on board. I hear Randy going, Roots, Roots. Andy's going to take us uh, on, a, on a plane, and it's going to fly us around. You want to come? I said, no, that's all right. I'll see you when we get to the hotel. And that was the last time I saw Randy. What's interesting about the second flight is they had also taken a makeup artist with them who had a heart condition. So they were pretty much assured, no, I'm not gonna do anything weird this time because I know what she's dealing with. And so that was part of the reason Randy went up. Randy really was afraid of flying. 
And the fact that he got on that plane completely, to this day, blows the minds of his best friends. He said, okay, I'm afraid to fly, but if you're gonna take it easy, I just wanna get some pictures for my mom. And I wake up to, boom! Sharon and Ozzy are coming out of the back lounge. And I look to the right and the window's blown off. And there's Jake Duncan, our tour manager, on his knees. And he's pulling his hair and going, they're gone, they're gone. And that's, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at fire, house on fire with people that I loved in there. And it's like, there's nothing you can do about it. Coming up, questions surround Randy Rhodes' final moments. Was it a prank gone horribly wrong? Or does the pilot have a more sinister motive? And did Randy Rhodes sacrifice his own life for his bandmates? I 1,000% believe that Randy Rhodes saved everybody's life on that tour bus. On March 19, 1982, Ozzy Osbourne's 25-year-old guitarist is killed in a plane crash. But the circumstances bring into question another possibility in the tragedy. The pilot's estranged wife was on the bus, and Andrew seemed irritated that morning, according to everyone that was there. So there's a theory that maybe he was aiming the plane at his, his wife. Maybe he wanted to take her out. Maybe it was a suicide mission. Later on, I'm talking with our keyboard player, Don Airy, and he says, yes, there was struggle, because the plane just didn't come in like this all the way. It was like this, struggle going on, and then it went in like perpendicular like that when it hit the bus. What I believe happened in the cockpit was Randy trying to avert the plane hitting us straight on. Knowing Randy, that's exactly what he would do. He was not gonna sit there and watch this thing happen if he could do something about it. I 1,000% believe that Randy Rhodes saved everybody's life on that tour bus. Sharon, Ozzy, myself, Tommy Aldridge, and Andrew's wife. Investigators discover that Acock has been involved in a previous fatal plane crash six years prior, and that he has cocaine in his system the morning of the crash. Despite these findings and the report of a fight in the cockpit, the official ruling is that the death of Randy Rhodes is an accident. Although Rhodes only records two studio albums with Ozzy, he's forever remembered as one of metal's all-time greats. The fans are not fans of Randy because he was in a plane crash. They're fans of Randy because when they listen to his music for the first time, it has the same effect as he did 40 years ago. That's timeless music.
It's not unusual for a single song to be recorded by more than one artist. But there's one song that has two different original versions by two different artists that were released on exactly the same day. For Trisha Yearwood and Leanne Rimes, How Do I Live brings huge stakes and ultimately, huge disappointment. In 1997, Con Air is the big action movie, and you gotta have a big power ballad for your action movie. It was just a rule in the 90s. And so this songwriter named Diane Warren wrote a song for the movie Con Air called How Do I Live? And she promised that song to Leanne Rimes. Leanne Rimes is one of the greatest vocalists. The first time you hear her singing Blue, it'll send chills up your back. It's so good. Leanne Rimes is 14 years old. She's just been named the CMA Horizon Award winner, which is like the Best New Artist Award. I think she won the Grammy for the same thing. She recorded the song. Diane Warren loves it. Leanne Rimes loves it. Her record label loves it. But the producers of Con Air don't love Leanne singing the song. So they decide to meddle in the music business. They didn't think it was appropriate for a teenage girl to be singing this song for an R-rated action film. And instead, the producers reached out to Trisha Yearwood, and they asked her to re-record the song. Trisha Yearwood, she's at the top of all the women in country music. Having won multiple awards for Female Vocalist of the Year. And Trisha Yearwood's version is in the movie Con Air. But Leanne Rimes' people were not happy, and they said, well, wait just a damn second. We're gonna release our version too. But what made it really shady and awesome is that they released the Leanne Rimes version of How Do I Live at the exact same time that Trisha Yearwood's version came out. The public now has two versions and a choice, Leanne's version or Trisha's. Trisha Yearwood's version peaked at number two on the country charts. Leanne Rimes' version peaked at number two on the Hot 100. That has really never happened before. You've got dueling versions of the same power ballad racing up the charts. It's like going to a wedding and seeing two brides. It was amazing. The success of both versions yield Grammy nominations for Trisha and Leanne. Never before have two artists been nominated for the same category and for the same song. And this is must-see TV, nominated for Best Country Performance. But the question is, whose version is going to go home with the Grammy? Next on Music's Greatest Mysteries. And the Grammy goes to. We reveal the true winner in the How Do I Live battle. You can see Trish Yearwood being like, that's awkward. And later, we investigate a web riddle simply called the most mysterious song on the internet. It's like a cult that's formed around this song. Both Leanne Rimes and Trisha Yearwood have found unprecedented success with the song, How Do I Live? They are both nominated in the same category for the same song at the 1998 Grammys. Leanne, not Trisha, sings the track. Does this mean she's won? 
she does the song, and then, and the Grammy goes to, goes to Trisha Yearwood. Trisha Yearwood, how do I live? That is one of the greatest moves in the history of the Grammys. Leanne Rimes performed the song on the Grammys, and then one second later, Trisha Yearwood won for her version of the song. That's messed up. I guarantee you that fueled Leanne Rimes for decades. She had to be ticked at that. It's so funny, and if you go back and you watch the clip, you can see Trisha Yearwood being like, that's awkward. Okay, I'm going to go accept this award. Trisha says she had no idea that Leanne had recorded this song, that they had approached her first for the movie. I don't know if there's any beef, but I've never been aware of it. Even if there's no real animosity between the two country music legends, there's definitely a winner in this bizarre story. The real winner of this feud is Diane Warren, who wrote the song because she got paid every time somebody played the Trisha version or the Leanne Rimes version. She got paid every time somebody bought either version of the song. Diane Warren is the empress of this entire story. It's happened to all of us. You hear a tune and you can't get it out of your head. You gotta know what the song is and who sang it. Today, you can find the title and artist to virtually any song in the world, except one. One song has become an earworm for thousands of people, and the search for who sang it has spanned decades. It is the most mysterious song on the internet. The track's origins can be traced back to the early 1980s, when a German teenager records the song off his local radio station. He doesn't know the title or artist, and his cassette recording is the only known copy to exist. And naturally, the story finds its way to the internet. Today, I'm gonna tell you the story of the most mysterious song on the internet. In 2019, YouTuber Justin Wang picks up the trail and in turn, creates an online obsession. On my channel, there's a Tales from the Internet series, which is all about going into weird, sometimes gross, interesting mysteries. And this is the one that everyone just seemed to home in on. This song has a life of its own that just keeps growing. You've got musicians that are covering it. People are harassing the original DJ who played this song. And when you bring Reddit into it, you've really gone down the rabbit hole. The internet spiral leads to a full-on controversy when a Greek pop art singer claims it's his work. For four decades, the origins of the most mysterious song on the internet have eluded scores of internet sleuths. But in 2020, Greek musician Billy Knight claims he's behind the song. But does he have a case? He had a band called Statues in Motion. He says that this was one of several songs that were from the album that didn't make it to the final version but it's a very different style from this song. He does have a new band. Some people like think he's trying to market the new band, 
Other people are saying that he's a established, respected musician. He would never lie. But I am not convinced by the evidence that exists that it is his band. With the internet watchdogs divided between Billy Knight believers and doubters, the final piece to the puzzle may lie in newly released archives from the German radio station that originally played the track. Unfortunately, there are thousands of documents to sift through. The radio station kept records of everything. And then the community is just full of people who will go through every single song and verify it. One sentence amongst the thousands of records may hold the answer behind the most mysterious song. The mission is to find it. And if the band played a show, I'd be at that show. I would go see the song live by the original band. You can't stop listening to it because you want to take it apart note by note to see what you can uncover. Imagine if you're the one that actually breaks it wide open. A mystery like music comes in many different and myriad forms. The death of Randy Rhodes, the battle for how do I live, and the search for the mysterious song. They are all music's greatest mysteries. Thank you for joining us for Music's Greatest Mysteries, where we investigate the legendary mysteries surrounding the biggest names in music. Now remember, if you like what you heard, be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. Also, go ahead and leave us a review and don't keep the show a secret. Tell a friend.